Hi, welcome to Pathways. This is the podcast where we speak with Grenadians and other West Indians pursuing careers in the STEAM fields. Today's discussion is going to be another interesting one, so stick around. We hope you find something that resonates and helps keep you going along your journey. For today's Pathway, I spoke with Roselle Grant. Now, Roselle is Grenadian, born and raised, and currently works in Germany as a development engineer at Tesla. She holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, and her five-plus years post-graduation have taken her all the way to Deutschland. Please enjoy this insightful and wide-ranging conversation with Roselle. And if you like what you hear or have any feedback for us, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening today. All right, Miss Roselle Grant, welcome to Pathways. Thank you, Arlene. <laughs> I'm really, I've been really excited to have this conversation, so I'm glad that you're able to make the time to speak with us today. And I'm looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. I'm appreciative that you even asked me. So <laughs> thanks for starting this. And yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking with you as well. All right. So let's get things started. Just giving a little bit of background on who you are. So you grew up in Grenada. Which, which part mm -hmm. of Grenada did you grow up? So I was born and raised in the south side, particularly or in particular Springs. So that's in St. George. And I lived there for about nine years and then moved to Guav, where my family is originally from, for about two years, then moved back to St. George's. Okay. Jumping around a bit. So yeah. in your... Theme of my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we'll get into more of that later. Um, but so describe yourself for us in primary school, secondary school years? What type of a student were you growing up? Uh, I was talkative. <laughs> Let's start with that. So um, the first comment that a teacher would make to my mother whenever there was parent-teacher conferences was that Roselle talks too much. <laughs> um, but I was a good student. I was in the top three for most of my classes for every year. There was one year that I had to miss two, two weeks of school because I had pink eye. Um, that set me back a bit. But other than that, I was a relatively diligent student. Um, and I say relatively because truth be told, I only did what was necessary to be at the top and not necessarily what I had the potential to do. Hmm. But school, school was fun for me. I, I think it was a good balance between books and extracurricular activities and forging friendships that I have even to today. Right. Okay, great. So at what point did you realize that you weren't, um, I guess, seeking out your full potential at school? Is that something like a recent realization? Uh, no, I think I was self-aware enough to know this oh, probably all through through primary school and high school. 
Okay. Um, I knew this, but I necessarily, I, I didn't necessarily need to do more to get ahead. So why, why do more if you, if you don't need to? Right. You know, that sort of thing. And it might, to some people, that might seem that you are not intrinsically motivated or perhaps I wasn't, yeah, being pushed enough, that sort of thing. But I don't think so. I just chose that. I think life is a balance. So I chose on some days to, yes, do all my homework, get everything done. Maybe not read ahead for the next day. And let me not say, it's not something that I'm encouraging everybody to do, right? But instead of reading ahead for the next day, I would go outside and play or I would um, find my hands on something to build, get my hands on something and, and build something that had nothing to do with school, or at least so I thought at the time. Um, exploring that artistic, hands-on, outdoors person or, you know, things that interest me in that sense, right. instead of maybe reading the textbook for the next day. And I, I chose that balance because I knew that in terms of school or in terms of um, schooling activities, it was okay. It was good enough for me to, to get where I needed to, to be. Right. That's, that's fair, I think. You know, yeah. people tend to pick one or the other. Either you work really hard and you do very well or you just slack off. So that's a really good thing that you were able to find that balance from such a young age too yeah and I do think I really need to to mention my mom here I think she allowed me to you know find my my interests and things I, I enjoyed outside of the realm of the educational um, zone uh, so for instance in primary school I was part of a group called kids in action um at a very young age and i'm thinking i'm thinking like double digits i'm sorry single digits no seven eight nine we were out in different caribbean countries on different islands recording the geographical features um i remember at age nine i was interviewing a prime minister in nevis right mm -hmm. so getting exposure outside of the the math and the english and the social studies i think that really is what stuck with me um the experiences that stuck with me most from primary school uh even today i mean math and english and social studies are important don't get me wrong right. but it really was it struck a good balance for me so that was primary school and secondary school um i think it was more or less the same thing i was a swimmer from primary school into secondary school so i swam from my island and at some point I stopped, not because I was lazy or, um, well, perhaps partly because of that, but <laughs> I realized that it wasn't my passion. Like I tried it for a couple of years and to me, it was sufficient to know how to swim. It was sufficient to be able to stay afloat should I be lost at sea someday. Um, but I didn't want to take it to the Olympics, let's say. Right. So I stopped swimming comp competitively. I still do it as a pastime even today, but it, it was enough for me. And I think being given the option to do that and say, hey, 
mommy, you know what? I've had enough of this on the competitive level. Um, I want to try something else. I think given the freedom to do that was super critical in just staring where I am today, staring my, yeah, my, my, my path. Right. Well, big up to mommy Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you're, you're now an engineer. You did mechanical engineering in school and you're, you've had some different jobs along the way and now you're a, a development engineer, I believe it's called. Yeah. Um, so starting out, what was the process for you? Did you know back in, I don't know, secondary school that you wanted to be an engineer or where did that idea come from? I had absolutely no clue. So I never knew at ages, I don't know, up to 17, 18, high school time, I had no idea exactly what it was that I, I wanted to, to become in terms of, yeah, a, make a professional career. But I always knew what I did not want to do. Mm. So I knew I didn't want to become a doctor. I knew I didn't want to become a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to become, uh, you know, those fields that you kind of were exposed to. Yeah, the big, let's call them the big five, right? Yeah. That we always hear about in Grenada. Um, I knew that I didn't want to do those things. So what else was left? Or what, what else is out there? Because and nothing was left in the, the options that I knew of that I could pick from. Mm -hmm. So, and I think this is one of the reasons why at CXE level, I did 13 subjects. I did 13 subjects not because my mom told me to do 13 subjects, not because I felt pressured to do 13 subjects from my school, from my principal or anything like that. I just needed to keep my options open because <laughs> I knew that, <laughs> yeah, it was going into college, you know, maybe, maybe one day I do want to do the whole law thing and I, I'm supposed to have that background for it or perhaps I would want to go into business. So I did the principles of business. Um, but I did not know what I wanted to do. So in college, what I did think about, though, is it would be easier. Let's say I made the wrong decision in college, right? Or not necessarily the wrong decision, but one that wouldn't suit what I liked eventually. So just the way I started out with swimming, um, what if I started something and I didn't want to pursue it further? I figured that if I did sciences or if I didn't go into sciences at T.A. Marshall Community College, it'll be more difficult to get into that field after I was done from college, right? Whereas there are certain subjects you can do post-secondary school, or um, it's easier to, to, I guess, get into fields, even if you don't have so the background for it, because you can do it, let's say, online or from other institutions. So that was the reason I chose sciences at school. Um, one thing at an early age I knew I was interested in was climatology, meteorology, and planes. This I knew. So I thought that math, physics, and geography would be the three uh, subjects I'd focus on in, in college. And that's what I did. That is just knowing what I liked a little bit is what stared me into the direction of those three. 
And I figured with math and physics, if I have those two, I can practically get into anything else. With geography, I did it for the, for the love of the subject, for the love of what it encompasses, not just geographical features, but it dealt with people, um, it dealt with the climate. Yeah, and that kind of spilled over into me working at the meteorological office after Tam CC. Okay. All right. So, so you seem very self-aware as a young, a young student. Did you have any mentors growing up, whether it's, you know, formal or, or just people that you looked up to and were able to have conversations with? Like, how did you know that math, physics is, and geography is what you need? Were you having discussions with people or did you just read a lot? Like, what, what was guiding you at that point? Uh, quite frankly, the internet. Um, yeah. How do I become, I remember Googling at age 12, how do I become a pilot? And this company, they gave out, it was a, I guess a promotional time for them and they gave out CDs. It was, I think it was called how to become. And they gave out CDs for if you wanted to become different things. Yeah. And they sent me a CD, how to become a pilot. What do I need to do? Um, that kind of thing. So I, I went online. Uh, yeah, luckily for me, I had that that option. Um, I spoke to my mom. I spoke to my father. And yeah, even though they didn't say do this or do that, I think they would have been supportive either way. So I kind of steered my own ship, let's put it that way. But I do recall, if, if you ask me to name teachers or professors from one subject, and I will remember all of their names, it would be my, my math teachers, math and physics, all from, from pre-primary school all the way to, to university. Hmm. So I knew that I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed those subjects, not necessarily because those subjects are better than other subjects, but just because of the way the teachers delivered the subjects, right? And I think that is, if teachers understand how much influence they have in that sense on, on students, um, I think they'd be super, super proud to be, to be a teacher. Right. Well, my teachers had a big, a big thing on that. I mean, conversely, you have, I had the flip side of that, right? Where there were subjects I didn't enjoy, not necessarily because I wasn't good at them, mm -hmm. but because I, I didn't click with the way it was presented to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. So I'm gonna say my, my teachers and the internet and just my, my own self-awareness a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> that seems yeah. to be a big part of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so when at the point when you decided you were looking at being a pilot and all of that mm -hmm. how how did that then translate into pursuing further education in engineering okay so it started off with um okay so me not becoming a pilot firstly was because i just didn't have the money right <laughs> Um, there were options to to do this training right outside of school. However, what I saw on the internet were were the opportunities in 
places like the US and bigger countries, you know, at the time, had I known about the flight school in Trinidad or the flight school in Guyana, or that Guyana actually produces some of the best pilots in the Caribbean, if I knew about that, if I was exposed to that information, I think my life would have had a completely different trajectory. I, I mean, and, and the costs for those studies were not as exorbitant as the ones for the opportunities that you know, we had for the US. So if I knew about those things, I would have gone there, but I did not know. Um, it's sort of a, let's say a blessing and a curse at the same time, right? Because I, I don't think I would trade where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. But having that knowledge of, hey, in the Caribbean, you have this option to, to go fly for, if you know, you can go study for six months to become a pilot or two years, depending on what you want to do. If I knew that, I would do that. I would have done that. But I didn't. So what happened was, um, is after uh, college or after T. Marshall Community College, I started at the meteorological office. And uh, let me be completely transparent here. There was about two months, two or three months between the time I did that job and the time I ended college when I was unemployed. You know, and you think to yourself, how is it that the person who comes first in class every day or, or not every day, but every semester or, you know, is capable of doing work and capable of getting things done? How does she end up at this, in this position, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I'd t- I'll be honest, it, it kind of, it messes with your your confidence a little bit, and sometimes even a lot. Yeah, I mean, luckily for me, I had a supportive mother who was always there. Um, yeah, and, and at the time, even, go ahead. Even okay, even during this time, I said, you know what, you're not gonna sit at home and feel sorry for yourself. So my best friend and I, Colleen Haynes, we signed up for a Spanish class at the Venezuelan Institute. Um, I mean, even today, I I am not fluent in Spanish, but it was something to do. It was something fun. It was something engaging. And it was something to to divert my attention from the fact that, hey, I don't have something else going on in my life, uh, at least career-wise, right? And that kept my spirits up. So... And so in those two months, were you you actively looking for a job or was it just that you were actively looking? Okay. I was actively looking anywhere in <laughs> anything. Yeah, <laughs> I would have done anything. Yeah. Okay, so, so how did you I was, get that first job at the meteorology office? It was, I knew someone who worked there and um, she, you know, told me that they were, they were offering positions to some team Marshall community college students. And, and even though it was short term, so I decided to apply and I got through. So I did this uh, for about three, four months. And after this job, I moved into insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after working at this insurance company for about, I'm going to say maybe about eight months, then I moved into teaching 
And this is where I stayed for about two years. So I taught geography at an all boys high school in Grenada. And even to date, Arlene, I think that is perhaps one of the most fulfilling things I have done. Yeah, and it's so, interesting yeah. that you, you place such a high importance on the relationships you've had with teachers in the past. And then you were mm-hmm. able to then translate that into, I'm, I'm guessing, your relationships with your students. Indeed, yeah. And this is something I, I kept at the back of my mind every time we had class. How do I make this more engaging? How do I um, yeah, present geography in a way that isn't dull, boring? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fun subject. Mm. And you can do things with it. So, yeah. I mean, the irony to that is what was that it was my lowest grade at Cape, but still it was <laughs> it was the subject I enjoyed most right. at um, Tampisi. That just goes to show, grades is not everything. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay, so so you're teaching now, and then uh, you decide one day to go study mechanical engineering. What was that? <laughs> So, yeah, that's such an interesting transition there. Um, So I'm two years into teaching at this point, and I had the desire to do a little more uh, for myself because I knew I was capable of doing it. And I knew I had my dreams. I had, yeah, ambitions and goals that I wanted to to conquer. there was one day, I mean, I have to give you this, this story, right? It's a one minute spill. But okay. there was one day I went to the doctor's office. And I mean, I'm a Grenadian. I've, at this time, I've been driving for maybe two, two, three years, right? And I parked, apparently, I parked in an area that's a no parking zone. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I've walked the street for years I'm 21 at this time. I've walked the street and I have never known that it's a no parking zone because there are always cars there. So I parked and I'm sitting in the doctor's office now and I see the car being towed away. I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) So I leave the office. I jump in with the officer. Yeah, long story short, I get back to the doctor's office and I met Mrs. Gordon. So she was our counselor at TAMS DC. I'm not sure if you remember Mrs. Gordon. Yeah, I do. And yeah, okay. So she, she was the one who told me, hey, Roselle. And that just goes to show like how God's timing is everything, right? If I had not left the doctor's office at that time, then I wouldn't have come back later to, for us to, to connect. Mm. So she was the one who told me, hey, there's this opportunity in the US, the deadline is in three days to submit your application. And within that application, you have to write an essay. Um, she, she told me about this and I, um, I mean, three days, three yeah. days. <laughs> Still, I, I don't know what allowed me or what pushed me to pursue it, but I did. And then I walked into TAMCC, I submitted my, my application. I did what I needed to get done. and. Yeah, I was selected to then be given a part scholarship to attend IIT and life kind of just changed from there. Now, the interesting thing about this story too is that 
it wasn't a matter of just getting in and then I headed off to the US. Um, but when it was time to, to come up with the money, to come up with the funds to, to cover the other part of my studies, I couldn't do it. I did not have it. Um, at the time, my mother did, did not have it. And I remember, I remembered crying and then my mom seeing that and then she crying because I hadn't cried for a long time prior to this, you know, and I knew that it hurt her that I was, that she wasn't able to, at the time, make that monetary investment um, in me. Mm-hmm. But then again, as I said, everything was just the perfect timing. So I deferred my acceptance into IIT for about for a semester or two. Mm-hmm. And that is the best thing that could have happened to me. Why? Because at that time, I had Grenada, other Grenadian uh, counterparts who would have gone ahead a year. I was able to use their books. Uh, other, for, you know, all the other students from the Caribbean, I was able to use books from them. Because of when I started, so I didn't start the usual uh, August semester. I started in January. Because of that, I was able to take a year off school in IIT to complete a co-op. And then that co-op led to a full-time job, et cetera, et cetera. So the timing was, was indeed perfect. Wow. Okay. So you, when you applied for the scholarship, you had three days notice, basically. Did you know mm-hmm. immediately that you wanted to do mechanical engineering or what did you apply to? Which school? Yeah, so I applied for mechanical engineering. So at this point, I know I knew that, okay, I, yes, I like the weather. Yes, I like climatology, etc. cetera. Um, but I like to get my hands on things. I like to solve problems. I like to be hands-on outdoors and I want to be versatile. So I, I know myself. I get bored easily. I want to be a versatile person. Why did I choose mechanical engineering? Um, my first love would have been aerospace engineering, but I knew that that was a niche market. I knew that because of my readings from the years before, I knew that to become an aerospace engineer, particularly in places like the US, et cetera, you had to be a citizen, um, that, that kind of thing. So I chose mechanical engineering because I knew if I, if you know the stars aligned, I would eventually end up in aerospace. Um, I knew that mechanical engineering, they call us the undecided of the engineering field (laughs) because we're kind of, we have skills to go into every direction. You can study mechanical engineering, you can become a civil engineer because you do the same statics and dynamics courses that the civil engineer would do first, right? Right. Or you can go into aerospace or you can go into the chemical field. So I wanted options the same way I did for the CXC subjects. I right. wanted my, yeah, I wanted my tree to have many branches that I can go sit on, on any one of them. So that's why I selected mechanical engineering. It was kind of a safe road for me because it gave me the options that at the time I didn't even know I had. Right. Smart. Smart direction. Okay, so so now you're, you know, you eventually make it, come up with the funds and make it to IIT. And then you you mentioned that you uh, had a co-op opportunity. I think it was in your first mm-hmm. year or second year. When when did that happen? 
so that was in my what should have been my third year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how did that come about? Did you apply to this? How did you find out about the opportunity? How did you get there? Okay. So at IIT, I was somehow coaxed or coerced into applying to become the SWE president, so SWE Society of Women Engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, this was huge for me because I, it's not something I, I, I aspired to, to be, right? Yeah. But somehow I ended up in that role. And then we had a conference one year in Tennessee. So I attended that conference and I met someone called um, Matana Tears. And she was at the time the, the manager in the controls department of a pulp and paper mill in Southeast Texas in Everdale. Mm -hmm. And I went to this conference, you know, you have job fairs at these conferences. So this is where I met her. And why I, I mean, aside from, from her choosing me, why I chose to, to then go to this company because I had, a, you know what, well, you know what's interesting here? Let me backtrack a little bit. At this point, I was given two options. So I had the opportunity to go to a company that did aerospace. And I thought, wow, this just falls into my lap right now right? i mean so it seemed of course i worked for certain things right mm -hmm. but i'm like okay the opportunity presents itself and then i meet matana tears and then she gives me an opportunity in the controls department of a pulp and paper mill i don't know anything about paper <laughs> i did not know anything about controls at the time because i hadn't taken my controls classes yet so i'm like ah I was torn with the other company. I was being offered more money. But what really drew me to the, the opportunity with Mrs. Tiaz is that she was the person there recruiting. So that spoke volumes to me. If, because the manager took the time to attend the conference. The manager took the time to speak to the individuals to, to understand who is it that she was hiring or she would be um, mentoring for eight next eight nine months um, with the the other company the offer the offer incorporated like a, a three month period so only the summer period for the internship it paid better it was in my my field of interest but then I was sold when <laughs> when Mrs. Tia spoke to me and she said hey in the first three months you you don't get anything in three months, right? She really sold her company. And I can tell that it, she was someone who would, for, just from our conversation, that she was someone who would invest the time in me mm -hmm. to teach me um, what I needed to know. I knew that she was well-versed technically. So this is why I chose the pulp and paper mill. And I went to Southeast Texas for eight or nine months. And I worked there for my co-op. And then when I came back to school, that led to a full-time job. So my, I'm not going to say that I slacked off for my fourth year or my <laughs> final year, my third year. Um, but knowing that I had a full-time opportunity after 
really made school or that last two, those last two semesters stress-free because it can be daunting having to think about what next, particularly when you're not from that country. Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up in that internship. <laughs> okay, so that, that's a really, that was a really good path. And just knowing that, you know, getting into these different organizations sometimes mm-hmm. does help make the right connections and put you in places that you wouldn't have been before. It most certainly does, yep. All right, interesting. So now you're working in controls. Um, and the, the thing is you've, as we've noticed before, you, you tend to jump around a lot. so (laughs) i believe your next move what would have been to nevada maybe i don't know i I can't keep up with with you sometimes but (laughs) how did you then so after after you graduated you you were working full-time at the same company or was it another one in texas yes so after i graduated i went back full-time to this company however it was not in the controls department this time i was on the paper machine so i was a process engineer on the paper machine um, and just a little bit more about this company right so it's the second largest um let's say paper board manufacturer in the world after IP, IP is international paper. So I was with a company called West Rock. It was MWV at the time, but then they went through a merger. And in Southeast Texas, I was, I mean, I have to mention this, right? I was, I was female. Mm-hmm. I am black. I was the youngest of the, the people I worked with on the paper machine. Um, I was, of course, the least experienced. I mean, I I was working with guys who were there for 30 years, some people 40 years, Mm -hmm. right? And this experience really taught me how to, I guess, navigate in waters that you're not familiar with, if, yeah, for want of a better analogy, but how do I speak to somebody who doesn't trust this person who just comes out from college with a very limited experience in this field? I mean, the good thing for me is that I was exposed to these people before during my co-op period. Um, So now I had, and because of, you know, my manager's mentorship and how she, she pushed me into certain projects that I had no idea how to do, but at the end of the day, we figured out how to do it. Um, I gain the confidence to say, hey, I think we can improve this if we X, Y, Z. Or, yeah, it can be very intimidating as the the most experienced or the the least experienced person to go present an idea to somebody who's been doing it one way for so long, Mm -hmm. right? And that really taught me that, first of all, the art of persuasion. How do you speak to somebody to convey your idea without offending them and basically telling them there's a better way to do it, right? You can say the same thing, but the choice of words, your mannerism, um, if you go from it from a, uh, if, if it's someone in, let's say, in the finance office or someone who cares about the money side of things, what do you present as your opening statement? 
hey, I think we can save X, Y, Z if we change this process or if we alter this process. Um, if it's someone on who is more on the technical side who understands the chemistry, let's say, hey, I think we can purify this water more before we send it back out to, to the river if we use this chemical or that chemical, you know? So I think that experience, aside from developing or increasing my technical aptitude, um, really taught me how to, to confront people. I mean, I've had unpleasant experiences as well, but that's with, that's like everywhere you work, right? Or every, every environment you're in, you will have those, those experiences, those not so pleasant experiences. But I really appreciated my time at this company because of this. Um, and I, I enjoyed my job. I didn't have the strongest chemi chemistry background. And pulp and, pulp and paper is such a big chemical process. Uh, yeah, the paper machine is a huge mechanical system. And I think that's what drew me. And that's what kept me there. But it's really difficult to make paper. I mean, particularly paper board, you know, the Starbucks coffee cups. And so that we, we drink from every day and we take for granted. Um, <laughs> No, I scrutinize and observe each one of them. I observe for working. I say, okay, this is a poor quality. I can be very critical of it, but yeah, what I'm taking away, what I took away most from that company is how to handle people. Hmm. Yeah. And then after this, I was reached out by a, recruit, a recruiter from Tesla and yeah, I'm like, okay, why not? Why not make the, the jump into an electromechanical field? And let me tell you this, I was, I was intimidated because when the job role was presented to me, it was not something that I knew I was strong in, right? It's not like, ah, no, I, I know all about paper, so I'm going to go, you know, kick butt at this company. No, right. it was not <laughs> like that. And I knew that there was the big hype behind Tesla at the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, everybody wanted to work at Tesla. Everybody thinks that everybody who's at Tesla is a genius or anything like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, I think that was the, the perception yeah. from it the might, outside. It might still be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so me being given this opportunity to go there, I was scared, Arlene. I was intimidated because I knew I didn't, I knew very little about, uh, first, I knew very little about cars at the time, not to speak about electric vehicles. I mean, I almost knew next to nothing. And I'm not the sort of person where I would say, um, oh, I was not the sort of person that's, that would say, Hey, yes, I know what to do it if I if I do not. Right. Right. So I'm like, do I say no to this opportunity? In my head, I question, do I say no to this opportunity because I'm I'm afraid I'm underestimating myself or I don't think I can do it? Or do I say yes and then figure it out after? And I remember <laughs> as as so many of us Generation Y students. Yeah, we learn everything on social media. I, I saw this post from Richard Branson that said, you know, say yes and then figure out how to do it after. <laughs> and as cliche as it sounds, that's what I did. I'm like, yes, I can do this. And 
I will figure it out after. Not that I lied or anything. It's just that was my way of motivating myself. Um, yeah, and then I moved to Tesla's Gigafactory in Reno, Nevada, where I stayed for about two years. Okay, so how did this recruiter find you? Was it LinkedIn or somewhere it else? It was on LinkedIn. I think it had to be on LinkedIn because at the time I was not looking for a new position. Right. After school, yeah, and I already had a yeah, full-time position for after school. Um, yeah, so someone reached out for me from LinkedIn. His name was Scott. And yeah. And did you, I'm just curious, did you have like a, a really well updated LinkedIn profile? Like what do you, what do you think drew them to your page to begin with? Yes, I had an, uh, an updated LinkedIn profile and at the time I had a professional account uh, that was, yeah, I had a professional account. Um, and every time I did a course, so, you know, LinkedIn offers these courses, these, whether that be a day or a month long course mm -hmm. that you can do at your own time. Every time I did a course, I made sure to add it to my, my resume okay. and make it visible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I was relatively active on LinkedIn. Not that I would post every day, but I would read items. I would like items from other influencers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I followed particular companies. So yeah, the things that I was interested in reflected on my, my LinkedIn page. Whereas if you look at my, my other social media accounts, you would think I'm a totally different person compared to who I truly am. I think <laughs> LinkedIn really reflects, um, yeah, Roselle's general interest. You can, you can have a feel for what she likes if you look at, look at her LinkedIn account. Okay. All right. So find her on LinkedIn. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, so now I'm, I'm really interested in this next jump. Um, yeah. So you you spent two years in Nevada <clears throat> and then mm -hmm. you you're now in Germany I'm now in Germany yeah. still for Tesla yes all right so what has been your experience pursuing like this more global career path like what kind of adjustments did you need to make on a professional and personal level moving from the U.S. to Europe um what how has that all been for you what what has changed because you're working at the same company but i'm sure there's um, you know some cultural differences or whatever it is so how how has that all worked out for you um so perhaps i leave this as a present continuous tense so how is that working out for me mm -hmm. it's it's it has its challenges but it's never something that I will regret. So first of all, I think it's important for, for folks to, to understand the reason I made that move. Um, I am not a U.S. citizen. We all know how it goes with the, the lottery system for the H-1B visas, which allow you to work in the U.S. for an additional six years after you've expired your F-1 visa, right? So I was working at Gigafactory at the time on the F1 visa, which allows me to gain practical experience in my field. Um, the company tried for several times, but my name was not pulled from the hat to, the, to, to get the H1B visa. And mentally, I was 
you know, I was okay with going back home to Grenada. I was, I was prepared. I thought to myself, I've been given a great opportunity. I've been blessed with, with my six or seven years in the U.S. and I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, I'm okay with going back home. But then, you know, there were things happening in the background that I wasn't aware of where someone spoke to somebody else and this opportunity came up for me to transfer to the office in Germany or to the site in Germany. And of course I'm going to say yes. I had nothing, uh, <laughs> let's say, holding me back or, you know, deterring me from making that transition. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, I mean, aside from the fact that it's Germany, right? <laughs> it's different. I mean, I hadn't been to Europe before, but I... I mean, I read, reading is probably not my favorite pastime, but I was aware of what was happening on the globe, in the globe, right? Um, so, it, again, it was scary, but then in my mind, I'm like, you've been training for this your entire life. You moved from Grenada on a Saturday, Moved on the Sunday, started school the Monday. <laughs> you moved from, from, let's say, Chicago on one day. You started work in Texas on another day. You moved from Texas to Nevada, did the same thing. This is just, you know, it just happens to have a, a huge ocean between this next move right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I jumped on it. I seized the opportunity. I moved to Germany. Um, of course, the, the culture is different, not just the, the, you know, Germanic versus U.S. culture. I'm just talking about, let's talk about the internal culture of the company was different at both sites. Right. Um, like at U.S. Gigafactory, I was accustomed to what felt like the freedom to sort of, you have an idea you implement and execute. Um, you have uh, the, let's say the freedom, you, it was a little more flexible in, t- in terms of the working hours or how you would request vacation time, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, it felt collaborative, not just because of uh, Yeah, it felt collaborative on the on the level that, or in the, in the sense that you could work with people from the manufacturing team, or people from the design team, or people from the uh, let's say management. Um, everybody kind of stared towards the same direction. And it, what what was interesting is that you had, I guess, an overlap of of duties. So the process engineer so by the way i worked in gigafactory as a process engineer on the time so i was in production like and on, in a production environment it's intense it's you get this tool running you get this going otherwise you're you're held accountable right mm-hmm. but at the same time the process engineer can also make contributions to design or the process engineer might be the one who comes up with an idea to change the manufacturing of, of the product that we were making at the time. And this is really, I miss that. I've, 
it's something I appreciated uh, both my experience in the US. Um, in Germany, things are a little more uh, structured in terms of the overlap of duties aren't necessarily there, but then you understand why, is, why it's like this as well. Um, this is a company that, you know, people have been here for a while. Um, sometimes you do things, the, they do things the way they do it because it works right? They've, they have a ton of experience. Whereas on the US side, we were trying things for the first time. Most people had less than five experience in, the, in their careers, right? Five years of experience or less. So we were trying things. So it felt like it was okay for us to just throw water at this fire and see if it, it oh, the flame. Whereas here they had tried and true processes that they believed in, which also sometimes could make you feel like man you can see a different way to do this to, to get this done you can see a better way but it's probably a little harder to to implement mm. yeah and i'm not saying that one is better than the other it's just the difference uh, the, the observations that i've made and the things that i've had to to grow accustomed to right and yeah so it's a more structured approach to problem solving which, which is good. I mean, know that, know we have the, you know, approach to think, first of all, understanding what is wrong before you go throwing your, basically before you use the wrong fire extinguisher for like an electrical fire, mm -hmm. right? So it's, yeah, that methodolic, that methodical way of thinking about problems and going through it. Um, that's something I've, I've picked up here. So. Yeah. So out of curiosity, mm -hmm. are there any language barriers within the workplace or does <laughs> Oh yeah, most certainly. So why <laughs> why did I not start with that one? Um, so luckily for me, so I'm in West Germany and where I am located, most people here speak English, which is a pro and con for me. A con because I am I didn't have to feel pushed or pressured to learn the language. Mm -hmm. um, a pro is because I kind of hit the ground running from day one. So even if I didn't have time to learn the language, at least I could communicate with most people. Mm -hmm. Right? So, yeah. But it has really been a double, it has been a two-edged sword because I am still not fluent. I wish I could tell you I, I went from zero to hero in the time that I've been here, but I am not fluent. I have, however, um, started to, to learn the language and not just learning it. I think for me, the issue is not just learning the language because I have a really good, good teacher who has presented the ideas and, you know, why do we use the dative and accusative, et cetera, things that you never even think about when you're speaking a language. Mm. Um, yeah. My thing or what, what prevented me from accelerating my, my speaking or fluency is being afraid to be wrong or being afraid to sound like an idiot. I mean, nobody wants to sound silly, right? Um, but you have to go that go through that phase. When it comes to learning languages, you 
it's just a thing you have to do unless you're naturally gifted where you can stay in an environment for two weeks and pick up everything. Um, you have to be willing to make the errors, to speak. Um, I can write a little, I can read a little, but the speaking is still slower than what I would like, where I would have liked to be. Um, and I think my biggest wall there has been myself, just not being willing to, to sound silly. And I've realized that, I, I know that this is something that I'm aware of, and I've started to correct it. I speak to you, we, it's sung half German, half English, then that's what we go with. Sometimes there are people who are not quite fluent in German, in, in uh, English, so I do it with them. They practice their English with me, I speak German to them. So pushing myself in that sense has been the biggest, I mean, the biggest cultural change, the biggest change in myself that I've had to make. Generally, I mean, I can push myself, but I think this is something that I had to be super conscious of and be okay with being wrong. And I think that is, that is what holds a lot of people back when it comes to, to learning languages. Nobody wants to sound silly. Nobody wants to say something that doesn't really reflect what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. And in my case, uh, I mean, when I'm relaying something, I would like it to make sense because I don't want to tell someone to manufacture a circle and then I accidentally tell them to manufacture a square, right? <laughs> because it, there's a money cost behind that. So, um, yeah, being yeah. okay with that mm -hmm. is is what needs to be done for me. Yeah, being okay with being wrong. Yeah, maybe maybe the work environment is not the first place you try to test out your your language skills. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that could cost a lot. Um, <laughs> but no I think that's a really it's a really transferable problem that lots of people have it's not yes it happens a lot with language but the barrier to doing anything really is is all in our heads a lot of the time it's that we're afraid to try new things or we're afraid to fail at what we yeah. really want to achieve and yeah. something Indeed. I struggle with for sure and I, I know lots of people do but Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good way of, of placing it. And I think too, being able to say that I don't know, I think that is just humanity's weak point. Mm -hmm. Just humans in general are afraid. We're afraid to admit, hey, I don't know something. Because we synonymize I don't know with I'm not good enough. Uh, yes. Yeah, whereas there is so much opportunity in saying I don't know means I can figure out a different way or a different method and this is something that I yeah I hope that people take away from this it's okay to, to, to not know it's not okay to stay ignorant but it's okay to initially not know I love it yeah <laughs> Okay, so uh, at the at the risk of drawing this out even longer, I have I have a question that I'd like to ask because I know mm -hmm. that I know that you dabble a bit in investing, and it may be more than dabbling at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but how, how much can you tell us about i just i'm interested in how you got into the whole investment industry and and maybe a little bit as much as you're willing to share about how, what you do there sure so my first or the first bit of advice shared with me in terms of investments i'm gonna have to say came from my mother so from I, I remember early early stages my mom always used to say it, when you can if you can make sure you invest in piece of land mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i just always remember that i mean i'll be honest with you the first thing i bought was a car so i <laughs> did not follow that advice yeah <laughs> but the, it doesn't give you the, the best um, return on investment for sure right <laughs> <laughs> exactly so what how i was exposed to the world of investments or financial investments was being employed in the us so when you when you work in the us full time um depending on the company you work at certain companies do what is called a 401k plan for you and usually the irs in the US sets the limit as to how much you can contribute to that 401k per year. I think for the past couple of years it's been 18,500. So that means you would take 18,500 from your from your gross annual pay and you will be able to invest that into your 401k. Now the thing is this is tax free. Meaning so you make the investments before tax. <clears throat> and with that 401k the again depending on the company you're with you that money you can take and invest into the stock market right and when you invest that money into the stock market i'm not sure yeah the, the stock market has opportunity for everybody like you don't need to you don't need to be a, a guru or the smartest person in the world to make money on the stock market right you do need to pay attention to it you do need to read the cycles you do need to you know understand hey what's what's big now um maybe it might be technical technology companies what should i invest in you need to pay attention to what's happening in the world and if you if you start with the thing about not the love of money because we know where that goes um but if you start with the thing of where you it's you want to gain get more money then that would push you let's say to invest in the stock market if you want to do well in the stock market that will push you to to understand and always be aware of what's going on with global affairs if you want to make sure that you're always up to date with what's happening in the world then that will force you to read if you read then you speak better you know so it's it's really this uh ripple effect if you look at it you know some people just think about it as ah i want to make money from the stock market if you really want to make serious money from the stock market then that is what you have to do and then there's another side where you gain um on a on a personal level mm-hmm. right so i don't think people speak about that side of it but to make money you always have to remain aware and to remain aware you always must be seeking knowledge and figuring out what's happening everywhere so back to that irs system that 401k system sorry um you can take that money and invest 
and then you just pay on your capital gains. Again, this is different for different companies, right? Or different countries rather. Um, that is how I got my start in the in dabbling with stocks, let's say. And my really good friend at the time is the one who told me about it. This was again in West Rock in the pulp and paper company that I spoke of. You know, she was the one who said, hey, you should contribute this to this market or you should buy some CDs, um, um, certificate of deposits, you should do maybe, um, yeah, investments elsewhere. And then when I moved to, so this was my start. And then when I moved to, to um, Tesla, one thing I would mention here is that my move did not really come with a, a change in, or a major change in pay or liquid pay. Mm -hmm. But what Tesla had to offer us at the time were stocks, right? They didn't have the cash to pay everybody like from, if, if you're coming from a, from a state like Texas where people got paid quite well in, if they were in, let's say, oil and gas, um, what would lure people to the state of Nevada, well, how Tesla would lure people to, to, to Gigafactory was with stocks. And then if most of your, your let's say, income per se comes from stocks, then you're going to want to pay attention to what's happening with those stocks, right? And that's really how I kind of got into the whole business of stock market investments. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, and so I don't know what direction to take that in. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess, so you, over the time you've, grown some more and understood more about how the stock market market works and you you do continue to invest currently correct yes i do continue to invest okay but i will say it's not yeah you shouldn't be it's one of those things where sometimes it's best to leave it alone and not look at it for a couple of days because it yeah. can if yeah it, it i mean the stock market fluctuates right and you don't want your your moves and your highs and lows to be dictated by the highs and lows of the stock markets because you will you will be like a uh, process that is not at steady state you would be swinging all the time so yeah you lose your mind i'm 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 very daunted by by the by getting into it market yeah so it's something okay. i've been trying to to learn more about but um it's one of those things that fear is holding me back yeah Maybe it's one of those things where you should say like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to risk $200 and do it. And then when you see that 200 potentially become, let's say 2000, then I think you'd gain the confidence into doing it. Or, you know, it could go the other way. That 200 could become zero, yeah. but you will learn from it. True. Yeah. You know? I, I just have to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maybe maybe after this conversation, I'll, I'll have a little bit more courage. <laughs> sure. And if you want to, I mean, depending on where you are, certain websites I would recommend are things like um, TD Ameritrade or E-Trade. 
Mm -hmm. I would say TD Ameritrade because they have very good documentation and vid videos or series that says what we're like first of all what am I doing in here what, yeah. what, what do I go from here <laughs> you know yeah I think this was the site where I got my start from okay that's good yeah. to know and then what what has yeah. helped you out kind of in in growing past that is it just as you said reading and understanding more about global issues and what's affecting the stock market or are there any books or people or anything that you've found helpful? So I'm going to say my, the, the most helpful source for me with this has been my friend Kay, because she keeps up to date with these things a lot. Um, sometimes I tend to set it and forget it. And luckily for me, it's worked out that way in some, some, sometimes, most times. Um, but you know she because I, I don't have the time to look at it every day or right. to to set limits for when i sell or buy um but she does so it's good having someone who uh who does monitor it and takes the stress from that side from it mm -hmm. however if it's something you're doing for yourself um i quite frankly i have not read a book on stocks um, most of my learnings just come from the investments that I've made and what I'm seeing trending. Um, yeah, and just being aware with what's happening on the technology, particularly on the technology front of things. Technology, agriculture, artificial intelligence. I think these are things or three sectors that you, you want to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you, if you want to, to get into these sorts of things. Got it. Okay. I'll start digging into that. And for anybody out there who might be thinking of investing, just do it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Rosal, what's, um, I'll, I'll let you pick the age here. So what is a piece of advice that you wish someone had told you at either the age of 12, the age of 15, or the age of 20? thereabouts ah 12 15 or 20 maybe we go with 15 okay <laughs> okay um at age 15 i think i you know what, people have given me the advice, but perhaps I didn't take it. So the advice that I wish I would have taken would have been to read more. I think there is, re reading for me, I never enjoyed, let's say, novels. I never enjoyed fiction. I enjoyed books about the universe and things that are real. Um, but had I read more, I think I would have been able to tap into my artistic side earlier and more. Maybe languages would have come more easily to me. Maybe I would have been better at playing the piano or playing the guitar, which are things that I do know during my, my limited spare time. Mm -hmm. But I realized that the things that I, I, I thoroughly enjoy, um, I'd like to paint. I'm not great at it, but it's relaxing. 
So reading more would have been uh, a big, a big thing for me. And I know my mom encouraged this a lot. <laughs> like I said, I know somebody would have told me to do this, but I probably did not take the advice. Right. Um, I would have also said to to worry less. I mean, if I knew where I would be today at age 15, um, not that I was stressed out or, or that kind of thing, right? But you felt some sense of responsibility. I was my mom's only child. I mean, nobody wants to be, quote unquote, a failure. Nobody wants to, to be the like a bad example or not get somewhere in life, not get to not be able to be proud of whatever they would have achieved. Um, but I thought about that a little bit. And I think that's probably what pushed me to, to do enough to, as I said before, stay at the, the, the top of the class or so. It wasn't because, yeah. So my thing was just, you know, take every day, everything day by day, learn, live, um, enjoy the moment. Just be easy. Give you cut yourself some slack a little more. Yeah, exactly. As you said, enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. um, like there are times that I wonder how much further, uh, if at all, I'd be had I maximized my potential. But then the paradox to that is that the memories I have from school, the memories I have from my earlier ages, age is. Um, had nothing to do with the classroom. <laughs> I would never regret there was time, one time I ran away from, from school to see the prince. That to me, that was like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I'm sure none of my classmates remember what they did in class that day, but I remember that experience where I got to start the prince, to see the Prince of Wales. And there are times when, um, I mean, I'm not condoning running, running away <laughs> from school. Please don't, don't, <laughs> please don't uh, yeah, think that that's what I'm doing. Yeah. But I'm just saying that life is so much more than just our career paths. It's really, I mean, our career paths are, have a huge part to play in it, right? That, that forms part of, a, of our experience, so our experiences, but being able to be aware of what you like or what you no longer like because passions and the things and your goals and so that you're trying to attain. I mean, every day, maybe the goals that you had 10 years from now, maybe aren't the goals that you have today, right? So you are allowed to have changing passions. You are allowed to evolve. You are allowed to, to, take an exit on a road and, and try something new. So I think if someone um, gave me a piece of advice at, six, at 15, I think it would be that, hey, once you pick a path, you don't necessarily have to stick with this for the end of your life. There are avenues to adjust, to tweak, to move on, to change. Um, because I think at that age, this at this point i did not know this i did not know that once you make the decision to let's say become something uh on a uh, in a professional sense that you had the option to change right so i think yeah if i knew that then i would probably have done a lot more i mean even today 
I'm considering data science related things. You know, we think that money is the most, um, yeah, the, the most valuable thing out there right now is probably data. That's true. And there's so much around us. There's so much data around us and we're not putting it to use. And I just want to tap into that. And I've realized even today, I mean, I didn't know this five years from now. It took me up until this period to really do some self-evaluation and say, man, I like data analysis. I like being able to paint a picture from, from a pile of values, mm. you know? So yeah, it's okay if you choose one thing and you want to do something else. You just need to be smart about it. Whatever you are going to choose, make sure that it, it at least forms the, the ground level or gives you the foundation to jump to something else. Right. I, I can do it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> Roselle, this has, this has, this episode, this discussion has not disappointed. So thank you so much. That is good to hear. <laughs> thank you for having me. And um, yeah, thank you for allowing me to tell my story and sharing that. I hope that someone finds something or is able to take away something from it. Yeah, sure and Arlene, I have to say, you are doing a phenomenal job. I think this podcast, initiating this podcast and this whole Grand Steam project will really, really be great for our island. And I'm super proud of you for doing that. I just needed to say that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I, we all hope that it, it does, you know, get a bit further in the near future. But all we can do is start. Exactly. See, all you can do is start. <laughs> I need to take my own <laughs> advice. <laughs> okay, so Rosa, if there are, you know, students or young people out there listening who would like to learn more about what you do or get involved with what you do somehow, how can they reach you? All right. So you can reach me on LinkedIn. It's Roselle Grant on Facebook, Roselle Grant. And because I'm boring on Instagram, Roselle Grant. So, <laughs> so all my handles are pretty much the same. Feel free to reach out if you have questions. If you think that there is something that I can help you with or yeah, give you some sense of direction. I may not know the answer, and, but I will try my best. And that's okay. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Roselle. And to the listeners, thank you once again for joining us on today's Pathway.